Hi listeners, I hope you're having a great summer. Myself and Tim are taking a break and we'll return soon with a brand new season of the Irish Passport podcast. But in the meantime, please enjoy one of the bonus episodes we recently released for our supporters over on Patreon. We'll continue to post episodes like this throughout the summer, so if you'd like some extra summer listening and to support the podcast, do head over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport to get access to more than 100 bonus episodes just like this one. Thanks so much for listening. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Irish Passport Half Pints, where we are going to continue, Naomi, uh, talking a little bit about current events and things that we wanted to get around to discussing uh, in, in the last little while, right? Starting off with you, Tim, you're actually in Paris uh, recording this right now and you were just telling me there's rumour of a curfew. Um, I feel oh, like that uh, yeah. because this is like the top news story in the world, or at least in parts of the world right now, I have to address it. Can you tell us what's going on there right now? In Paris, yeah. So if you haven't seen, so we're recording this on the 1st of July, uh, 2023, and there have been riots for a few days now, really, really serious riots um, uh, all across France, not just in Paris, mm-hmm. right? which is, is really something. I think something like a thousand people, I think it was maybe 1,300 people now, uh, were arrested last night, which is okay. just, it made me think of... Um, it made me think of uh, our War of Independence episode, actually, uh, where we yeah. were talking about you know rounding up two thousand people after the Easter Rising. This isn't that far off, you know. <laughs> like, right. This is a thousand people getting arrested in in one night. Um, so, to make a long story short, there was a teenager uh, from the Paris suburb of Nanterre. It's just out to the west of Paris, not not at all very far from the city centre, um, who was shot by police. Uh, it seems shot point blank range um, while mm-hmm. he was in a stationary car. And it was on video. I haven't uh, seen the video, but apparently the video has been circulating quite a bit. And this created a a complete overboil um, in Mm. France for loads of reasons. And I think, you know, I'm glad we have a moment to kind of uh, look at this because whenever I see English language media or English language social media uh, about this kind of stuff, there is this tendency for Anglophone media to kind of say, oh, ho the French, ha ha, always rioting, ha ha ha, mm. you know, like it's the national sport, etc, etc. Yeah. Um, or even this kind of like um, uh, pride, you know, like why aren't we more like them? We should be out in the streets kind of. It's a very kind mm. of trivializing and patronizing view on all this because there are serious issues that make these things happen. You know, people don't riot for no reason. Um, mm. And this is a good example of that. You know, this is a really, really... Um, it's 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 a serious issue, of course, because of this teenager who was killed. But it's a serious issue um, because of the general uh, atmosphere of distrust of the police. That's this okay. huge issue in France, right? So mm-hmm. the police have they have a really bad reputation. Like they have a really really bad reputation uh, in France, um, largely because there is a, there is an impression that they get away with whatever they want to. Uh, mm-hmm. There's an impression that they they can't be held to account. Um, and um, maybe, you know, it's hard to explain, but there is a kind of, um, antagonistic, uh, almost posture between the public and the police that you mightn't see Mm -hmm. in other countries. You know, when a group of police, uh, walk down the street, there is a kind of, everyone gets a little bit tense, you know? Okay. And, you know, in, in a way that you wouldn't see in London, for instance, or in Dublin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And even if something happens to you, if you get robbed or something, there is a slight reticence, you know, to call down the nearest police uh, person um, because there is this feeling that they're not necessarily on your side, you know, mm-hmm. right? S- somebody I actually have well, yeah. Mm, I actually have like a experience of that which I can tell you about. But no, go on, tell me. You were saying somebody put it quite well. Somebody put it quite well. Maybe they were uh, quoting somebody else, but they said that the police in France are not here to protect you. Um, they're here to protect the Republic from you, right? Okay. Which I think um, I think that kind of sums it up quite well. Uh, yes, Naomi, I remember, yes, you had a, a, a bit of a dodgy run-in with the police uh, a few years <laughs> back. Yeah, um, I was out on the street late um, in, the, in Nice, in a southern city, and my friend was suddenly set upon by a gang of guys just at random random street violence and they beat him up um just for nothing i mean they they literally just saw, saw him and just beat him up and um these things happen sometimes and he you know he was visibly bleeding and stuff so uh we called the police and then the police arrived and they sort of swaggered up and um they treated him as the criminal um and yeah they were like they kind of said something like, oh, been fighting, have we? And then we were like, no, no, we want to make it a, a report because, you know, we're the victims of a of an aggression or whatever. And they were just, yeah, it was just a horrific experience, actually. And they we they did, they kind of made, we're kind of like, stop making a fuss about this or we're going to make it your problem. And ultimately, when we just persisted in trying to report the crime, they, they threatened us with a cavity search. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty horrific. In the end, the police that came, they just walked away and we ended up going to a physical police station to make our report. So we did make it in the end, but it was, I just, I find it really striking that I've had hardly any interaction with the French police because, um, you know, I haven't spent an enormous amount of time in France and I haven't really lived there, but like Mm. of the interaction I've had, this was it. And it's completely relevant fact that my friend was Moroccan, um, which I think is, you know, relevant because the racial dynamics of France. Yeah, I've never had um, a negative run with the police here, luckily. Uh, But just to give you an idea, not that long ago, I think it was during the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. I almost hit a a police officer with my umbrella. It was raining and I was hustling along in the heavy rain and, you know, I couldn't really see straight in front of me. Um, Almost had a heart attack because my immediate reaction was that they would, who knows, Right. If, mm. you know, if I were to embarrass or even humiliate or, you know, in some way, um, I, I don't know, kind of uh, take uh, take a liberty somehow with, with one of these people that they could do whatever they wanted. You know, like you just have to stay away from them, which is mm. just the existence of that immediate reaction shows you what the um, what the what the atmosphere is uh, with the police. Okay. So so that's me. That's me, you know, like hopping around university professor, white guy in the center of Paris. You can imagine how teenagers in the suburbs, you know, which are extremely segregated from the center of Paris, um, physically, mm-hmm. you know, with, with uh, infrastructure, um, extremely plagued with unemployment and poverty. You can imagine how they feel about the police, right? And what kind of mm-hmm. stuff goes on around there. Uh, so basically, uh, in the last few years, a few videos emerged of um, some extreme police violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, there was a video as well. And the feeling was, if that video hadn't surfaced, that mm-hmm. this wouldn't this wouldn't have ever been talked about. Nobody would know about it. It would just be another instance of this police um, violence. And mm-hmm. that how many of these other things have happened that, you know, haven't made it onto, um, uh, onto the national news or the international news. 
And I think that this kind of became a straw that broke the camel's back. Now, the big problem is, like, what's the way out of this to reform mm -hmm. the entire police, you know, like to kind of, um, you know, in a kind of PSNI move, right, to actually disband yeah. the police force and put in a completely different police force with a different ethos. I mean, that is kind of what would need to happen to really address the concerns about this, which is, I mean, even if it was possible, would take years, if not decades. Um, and the uh, the other thing is that the police unions are not having this, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the police unions came out today and I think they, they used this language. I mean, they said that they were at war with vermin, right? What? <laughs> I, I mean, they actually uh, used these words. Um, okay. You know, this is really, like, really intense language. Or even if they hadn't used that word, you know, the vermin, my God. But even to go the way of saying that we're at war... You know, is that the right tack? I, it shows that their immediate reaction to this is confrontation, which mm -hmm. isn't going to help anything. Anyway, uh, we'll see. I, I mean, I'm, I haven't seen any uh, writing where I live. I did open the front door of my building yesterday and there was a burnt out motorbike, but it seemed like a, <laughs> it seemed like an isolated incident. Uh, so, <laughs> so fingers crossed that it will die down today. The day that I'm recording is the funeral of this young man. Uh, so there is expected to be some confrontation tonight, if not a lot. A uh, few areas around the capital have put in these curfews between, I think, uh, like uh, 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. or 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. Um, quite a few around the city of Paris. Whether that's possible to do for the entire Paris area, I don't know. But mm. uh, it's it, it's quite shocking to see curfews coming back in, right? You know, this is mm. a bad memory that everyone has, right? Uh, and the curfews in, in the Paris region were so militarized as well during the pandemic it's that's not great <laughs> that's uh that's not a good feeling uh to to have mm. on the horizon uh, but we'll see so that's what's going on in, in france their little update that's it um another thing that we wanted to talk about today actually switching to a different topic completely yeah. was um, as is our want as, as is <laughs> our moment. want um was a report that I recently did, which is about conditions of the media in Ireland and how they're affected by Ireland's rather strict libel laws. Mm, right. Yes. Now, this is something that um, I know is like there's loads to talk about and we might actually yeah. make a full episode or maybe another half pint about this in future. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this is a good moment to kind of just delve into what are the main issues at play here? Go on. Hit me. Right. So it is a good moment to to dig into it. Um, so basically, I was asked to write up a report about it by the International Press Institute, which is an international mm. um, media freedom NGO. And they asked me to look into it because at the moment, the Irish government is looking into how to reform these libel laws, how they m might be done. Um, and mm. so there's sort of they want to push for, you know, the, the, for this reform to be actually carried through because we're still waiting for it on it to be done. Um, so mm. yeah, I I was really, I was, I accepted, I was very interested to look into this because right now I work for the Irish Times, right? But prior to this, I worked for various international news organizations. I worked for Reuters, I worked for Agence from Press, I worked for Politico, a whole range of different ones. And I was never so aware of the stringency of defamation and libel laws until working for Irish media. Like prior to that, it just right. wasn't something I thought about day in, day out with my reporting. Since then, it's something you have to think about all the time. It hovers over you. The Irish legal environment is just something that journalists in Ireland have to take into account with their reporting just like every day in a way that journalists in other countries do not do so 
and they they it, it's it's one of those things that Irish journalists aren't even aware how bad it is because they're just so habituated. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, like even even when you mentioned this, I was trying to think of a few examples that I could uh, give to the listeners, and then I thought I better not. Maybe it's libelous. <laughs> actually, <laughs> I know. That's one of the things. It's it's you get into this self censorship situation um, because oh. it's it's not just the cases that are won that's the issue. It's the threats and it's what you do to sort of avoid having to worry about getting a threat. But to to sort of describe what we're talking about here, um, just to take yeah. an example, we. Not, newspapers in general do not disclose the costs, how much it costs them to be dealing with libel claims all the time. Um, it's private information. But there is mm. one organization that does disclose it, and it has to because it's a public institution, and that's RTE, the public broadcaster. So we know how oh. much libel costs RTE because they have to release that information under freedom of information requests, right? So we know that in the six years up to 2022, they, RTE had 29 different sets of legal proceedings and that the cumulative cost of them to RTE was 4.7 million. And on wow. particular cases, the, the costs were still accruing because they weren't, it wasn't concluded yet. So every mm. case was costing an average of 160,000 euro and counting. Um, so it's extremely expensive. That's That's RTE... Um, uh, but like every media organization in Ireland is dealing with this from the very, very smallest magazines, podcasts and so on to the like big famous ones that everyone knows about. Um, and it's really interesting to to think about why our, our libel laws are relatively, they're more or less quite similar to Britain's because the, the origin of libel laws, I think it's something in the 17th or 18th century. Um, but we, we inherited most of British law when we got our independence and, and and Irish law basically forked off from then. It forked off from like 1923 and started to develop in its own direction. But the, all of the underlying stuff there is, is common shared law with Britain. And so we have a lot in common. Um, but what what struck me when I started to look into this is there's a couple of reasons why the sort of environment is particularly oppressive in Ireland. Um, and one of them is very high payouts. So just to give you an idea, um, in a defamation case in 1999, a politician called Francis Rossa, he was awarded just under 400,000 in damages. Um, and communications consultant, consultant was initially awarded 10 million in 2014. Well, that was, that oh was reduced on appeal to 1.25. Um, and I, just to put this in context, like this is, way, way, way beyond the norm in Europe. So, for example, in Austria, the very, very worst kind of uh, libel defamation case you can get, damages are capped at 50,000. And a typical right. damages, for example, in the Netherlands is between like 1,000 and 5,000 euro. Like th- these And we're talking about in 10 Ireland, million here. Yeah, like th- these are way, way off the reservation. Um, like uh, the way it was described to me was... These are all, these are jury trials, and the amount of mm. um, compensation is decided by juries. And people, I, I mean, the way it was described to me is that the juries seem to be kind of influenced by stuff they saw on American TV in terms of like injury claims and stuff like that. That's the amount of 
money that they were sort of taking as their reference point. But that kind of compensation, that can bankrupt a media organisation at a stroke. Like there are very few media organisations in Ireland that could just deal with that amount of damages if it was hit. Um, So the the trials are known as very unpredictable um, and the level of damage is very unpredictable. The law, the underlying law in itself is very strict. It's famously strict. It's so strict that people shop for jurisdictions and deliberately take cases in Ireland because they know that it's strict. So in order, like they could be based in the US and it could be like a French magazine or something like that. But if it's got readers in Ireland and they know that it was read in Ireland, they can take the case in Ireland and this happens because they know that huh. they have the better um, better chance of winning. It's got, like it's called libel tourism. It's kind of not- right. notorious. Um, one concerning development in this is that politicians, recently some high-profile politicians, have been increasingly taking libel cases against media organisations. So, for example, the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, she's currently suing RTE. Um, also, two MEPs, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. Um, also, a Sinn Féin MLA called Jerry Kelly. Um, the, all of these cases have been flagged by international press freedom and NGOs as being a concern for press freedom because, um, yeah, it's we, we can get into the effect of this now, um, if you like. The I'm not talking about any of these one cases in general or like the merits of any mm. one case, but basically what came out during my reporting, I interviewed like, I don't know how many dozens of editors, journalists, people who work at different organisations. It just cause it causes self censorship because the 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 costs that are imposed, not by a court case, but just the threat of a court case, are so heavy that it makes people think twice. Constantly, they think about: Is it worth mm-hmm. doing the story? How can I soften it to make it, you know, to avoid any sort of challenge, to avoid getting that letter? Because if you get a letter, if you all someone needs to do is send you a legal letter, and suddenly you need to pay a solicitor to to analyze what they've said, to look at the article, to go through it, to write up a letter, to respond, and like fees are like hundreds and hundreds for this. As soon as anything mm-hmm. gets near a courtroom, like they start escalating into thousands tens of thousands you know court the the costs are very very high and the cases mm. take ages to resolve um so the the default position of loads of news organizations is number one avoid getting any complaint number one and number two if there is a complaint just sort of make it go away as soon as possible so it's become kind of notorious among journalists if you, if you talk to journalists, they're like, oh, yeah, we're like, we just paid them off. Even if it was a frivolous case, even if they didn't really right. probably have a chance in course, in court, it'd just be like, you know, just give them money and make it go away. And there's a sort of reputation that, you know, some people have been kind of abusing this. Um, but something that like, you mean I to, really to actually make money, like, well, I mean, this, this occurs to me that like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you bring a case against a newspaper if it can make you a cool 400 grand at best and at worst they're going to pay you off not to go to court? (laughs) The amount of, yeah, the amount of payouts that we're talking about is less than that. But for example, I was told of an example of one regional newspaper, a politician misspelled, they misspelled the name of a politician. Okay, just misspelled a name. The politician Mm. um, made an argument that this was defamatory because it was like somebody else's name. Um, I, I don't remember exactly the, the ins and outs of it, but yeah, they paid him five grand and went, he went away. Whoa. Um, hold on, just, hold yeah. on now. Sorry, as somebody who's called McInerney, 
I feel like yeah. I've owed a bit of money. Um, <laughs> I think um, according to let me just get my calculator. Let me see. Boop 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 boop. Yeah, I'm I'm owed a hundred gazillion uh, euros actually. Then <laughs> according、yeah. to that metric.、Uh, sorry, go ahead. So yeah, obviously this is really bad. Like I know the like I know what the rates of freelance work are for that. Particular newspaper, and like you、yeah. could, you could commission like a year's worth of freelance articles on that. You know, this is this is so、right. much money in the context of how much media organizations have. And I do also want to state that like it's not just politicians, but politicians they get a lot of attention, and I think it's particularly concerning for politicians to be doing this. But it's not just them; it's perhaps the most common type of person that takes this case is actually property developers and landlords. Um, because、huh. there's a lo-、wow. there's a lot of、um, reporting in Ireland about like defective buildings, about evictions, because the housing crisis is such a big issue, and these、mm. guys they have the money, they have the money to pay the lawyers, and their aim is usually not not necessarily to win a case, just to make it too much of a hassle to bother reporting on them to begin with. Um, so yeah. yeah, they'll threaten you with a lawsuit, and you know they'll try. It's 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 basically a, it's a kind of an aggressive reputation management strategy, um, and it's available、yeah. if for people who can afford it. If you can afford lawyers, you can use this as like aggressive PR. So, for example, here's just an example. I spoke to a young reporter. He found out that a landlord was planning to evict an entire apartment block. Okay. He called、mm. the landlord, as you do, to ask for comment. That's an obligation before you publish any story. Immediately before the publish before the article was out, he received a threat to sue for def- defamation, and it was addressed to him、Whoa. personally. So not necessarily the newspaper,、ah. but it means they could sue you. The implication was that he would get sued personally. So we're talking about journalists. We're talking about people who don't have very much.、Um, they probably、yeah. don't like many people don't have their own homes. You don't really have very much. Um, salary. It's difficult for you to pay lawyers, and、yeah. you're immediately thinking, "Oh my God, what does this mean to me? Am I going to be bankrupted? Am I going to be able to pay my rent?、Um, how can can I afford a solicitor?" And not only did this landlord、um, threaten to sue the journalist, but also threatened to sue the tenants. He sent these letters、um, threatening、what? defamation to all of the tenants, saying, "If you speak to media, you'll be sued." And the tenants were、no. like they they were thinking even if I'm an anonymous in the article I'm going to find out I'll definitely get evicted you know it scared the shit out of everybody、um, and、uh, you know that the 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 ultimate effect was this journalist decided then and there to leave journalism he just thought it is not worth、oh, it、man. it's not worth reporting on this stuff I why would I be risking my entire livelihood、uh, fighting in this incredibly stressful way. Um, when I could just take an easier job, and that's what he decided to do. So, yeah, I started my story with that example because it's it just shows like the personal impact that this has, and it shows what it's doing. It's people, it's the wealthy and the powerful abusing the Irish legal system to intimidate journalists and to stop important true news that is in the public interest from being published. Well, I mean, th- this is really chilling. Like, like in all sorts of ways,、mm-hmm. it's such an abuse on so many levels. I mean, like,、uh, even just first of all, yeah, right. When you brought up there the issues that were concerning the tenants, like w- you would presume that that letter w- that was sent to the tenants has little to no uh, legal uh, backing. But like you say, even if it w- 
you know, just having to pay for a lawyer to make sure of that yeah. or, um, uh, or, or possibly go to court and even lose. Um, or just like you said, having your name associated with it and then trying to find another place to live. And, uh, oh, you're that, you're that person who like got into that altercation with their landlord. Um, you know, yeah, like, I mean, there's so many ways that this is kind of, um, intimidating people at once. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so much more importantly is, wow, like actual journalists just bowing, bowing out and not yeah. reporting the truth because it's, they've been successfully censored by people with interests. They've been successfully in the intimidated. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just journalists. So it's also the sources, right? It's the people who are sources, people who want to speak out. So for example, mm. um, there was one particular woman who wanted to speak out about sexual harassment that um, within a company and backed out of um, speaking to media after get, re- receiving legal threats. Um, mm. Another survival of sexual abuse was supposed to speak at a public a, a event and got a, a, a defamation warning in advance of that. Um, for example, I mean, I'm just kind of looking through the examples. One small new local newspaper that I spoke to, they were forced to pay solicitors and barristers a sum that would have been enough to hire an entire extra reporter for a year after being accused of defamation by a politician. And they were telling me they scratched their heads about why they got a defamation claim on this particular article. The article didn't reveal anything new. It was just like a summary of stuff that they'd previously reported that was like widely known about this individual. Um, But the amount of money they had to pay for solicitors and barristers just to sort of respond to the threat, like I say, could have hired an extra reporter for a year. Ultimately, it didn't go to court and they just ended up settling the whole thing by issuing a clarification. Jeez, this is mad. Yeah. Like they hadn't, they hadn't done anything wrong. They hadn't reported anything that was wrong. But they said, you know, the effect of this was like, that cost so much money, just this mere thing. They said, if they, their tendency now is just to stay away from anything that's contentious. Like something has to mm. be worthy of the front page if it's got any defamation risk at all. Like otherwise it's just not worth it. Like if it's going to be a story that's on page three or four and it's, it's going to upset somebody, they're just not, not inclined to run it. So it has this really, really bad effect on the public interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's creating it's creating kind of um, a cabal of people who, if you have enough money, you can make sure that your name is going to be associated with with these kind of letters. Like you know, if, whoever you are, yeah, um, that's right. You know, you send you, you get your you get this out there. Uh, not only will that article not run, but no matter what you do in future. people are going to be a little bit uh, reticent to ever talk about you in the media, uh, which is is a nice thing to be able to buy, isn't it? Is Exactly. It's 100% true, Tim. No, you put it very well. People develop reputations of being very litigious. And everybody knows who those people are in journalism because, like, you know, people know who... People share that they've received a threat and stuff. Um, And it absolutely has a self-censoring effect you just even if you even if you say yourself no no i'm going to be brave and i'm not going to like take take uh any any heed of this and i'm just going to report the truth whatever it is it still has an effect honestly you're still like thinking about it you're writing your article you're like oh will i put in this word or maybe i can sort of you like write it this way just because it's like it's the the hassle you know you're just you're not you're you think about it much, much more. Um, and also it, it has like a structural impact on newspapers as well and media organizations, because what happens, I had no idea about this before I joined Irish Media. I had no idea about this whole system. 
But the way that it works is if any article has even the whiff of something like defamation, it goes through a process which is called being legaled. Okay, I'd never heard of being legaled before I worked with Irish media. Um, being legal is basically that your article, it doesn't just go to an editor to check for content. It just doesn't just go to a sub-editor to be, you know, laid out and all the grammar checked and everything. It goes to a lawyer to check for potential uh, defamation libel risk. It, it goes to a lawyer to check if there's any, if there's any grounds anyone have to sue based on this article. Be, and it gets proofread by a lawyer. It gets proofread basically. by a lawyer. Exactly. Um, and this, this causes one delay. Uh, articles can be held up for days going through this process. Then it comes back. Then you got to tweak it. Then it goes back. And the costs are huge. Lawyers cost I loads bet. of money. Every time yeah. this has to happen, it's like hundreds of euro. Um, some media organizations can afford it, but many can't. Um, and mm. like it, it also, it dissuades risk because the lawyer's job is, you know, the lawyers are going to be doing their job saying, well, you know, this this sentence, you know, it's arguable that it's fine, but just to be on the safe side, you know, we should. And and so more often than not, they'll be they'll err on the side of conservatism. So you end up with these mm. weird articles where you have to kind of read between the lines to understand what it's about because it's become so indirect, you know. Um, oh so it, it has it has absolutely structural effects and it, it's very bad for democracy and I yeah I was the more I sort of looked into this the more um journalists that I interviewed the the more upset I, I got about it particularly because I do think that there's a real cynicism in many of the people who were making the complaints I see it a little bit a, a bit like frivolous injury claims you know people mm. seem to have figured out that there's a way to abuse the system here and some of them in, uh, seem to have lawyers on retainer and you would be surprised about some of the people who are sending out these defamation letters if you would hear them represent themselves they sound like oh they're you know champions of free speech and democracy but then behind closed doors they're sending out these letters from lawyers and they're you know they're taking advantage of the wealth that they have to uh, to intimidate journalists um and just pick through articles look nobody wants defamation to be totally like fine and like the people can write lies that are defamatory about anyone that's not what anybody wants the, what's at issue here is journalists being able to report stuff that's true and that's in the public interest and sometimes there are errors but if those errors are just innocent mistakes that are inevitable that are just human and that they're corrected immediately that that shouldn't carry the risk of bankrupting an organization or bankrupting a person you know yeah, and especially if it's completely out of line with um, general practice in the rest of Europe, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. there's no real justification for this kind of oddly litigious um, uh, culture being allowed to flourish where people are exploiting the system. Yeah. Um, which brings me to, like, how would you address this? I mean, like, the law needs to be changed, right? And I suppose... Yeah. Um, you know, like, what, what would that involve? Would that, I, I suppose that would involve a government making moves to address law, but I suppose this stuff probably suits a lot of people in government very nicely. Well, unfortunately, uh, yes, there are many politicians who are using this system to their advantage. And I, I want to say that it's cross-party. I've heard of politicians from every party doing this and independence. So it's not like a particular right-wing thing or a left-wing thing or something. It's really, mm. it cuts across the board. Um, it's not everybody that it's doing it, but the people who do do it seem to do it a lot. 
So there seem to be sort of mm. like people who are really into this. And like I say, using the system, abusing the system for aggressive reputation management. Um, so where are we? Basically, the re- the government is aware of this. They did a review of defamation law and they 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 came up with the idea that basically defamation trials shouldn't have juries anymore because that's really unusual in Europe for defamation trials to have juries. Um, they've okay. been sort of blamed for the unpredictable amounts of damages and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. They say that they want to have a reform that would protect, quote, responsible public interest journalism. And it would encourage, uh, if, if there's any issue with an article, that corrections and apologies would be the fix wherever possible. And that they would take mm-hmm. measures to reduce legal costs and delays. But they didn't they didn't propose introducing a cap on damages, which lots of EU countries have and Ireland doesn't have. They didn't want to do that because they said it would be too rigid. And some of the press reading NGOs are upset about that because they're like, you need to you need to cap damages. What's really interesting to me is like when they say to take measures to reduce legal costs and delays, that is so much a part of the problem. The legal costs and the time it takes for these cases to be concluded and, the you know, yeah, like I say, the very high cost of paying lawyers and stuff. But it's such a structural issue. I struggle to see how a simple law would just fix that because that's a that's a that's an issue throughout the system. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I mean, what you have all these um, solicitors on retainer to these newspapers, I you know, if the law changes, they'll be out of the job, for instance, you know, that's a, like a yeah. whole, it seems like a whole kind of set of um, of practices or a whole set of um, economics, I suppose, has built up yeah. around this system. Right. Uh, that's going that's going to have to be dismantled as well, surely. Right. So I might go just, I might just tell, I might convey, because I collected so many testimonies from the editors, from journalists, from all sorts of different organizations. I, I included loads and loads of these quotes in my piece um, for the uh, International Press Institute, because I, I felt like all of these stories really told the story like much strongly than merely describing it, because I don't know, it just really, to me, it kind of, it told the story from inside the system. And it, I, I, I told people that they could stay anonymous and I would just say it was a small publication or describe the kind of publication. Because unfortunately, the kind of catch-22 about this situation is that these legal letters, more often than not, they say, if you disclose that this is going on, it opens you up to more legal risk. So you can't tell anybody about this or, you know, it'll be worse for you in the trial or whatever. So they, there's an there's an imposed silence about this. Uh, sometimes it comes in the defamation letters itself, but sometimes it comes actually from within the media organizations. So the, the approach that some media organizations take is very risk averse. As soon as there's any complaint of any kind, automatically the article's taken down, the lawyers take over and the lawyers impose a silence. And they're like, no comment about this because it's an ongoing legal issue. And and it, it's like, it's perfect, right? It's perfect for the people who are taking the complaints because they're like, just got rid of it and nobody can say that this happened. Um, and I think right. this, for, particularly from politicians, it's so, so bad. Um, so yeah, this yeah. by collecting these stories, I, my aim was sort of to break the silence on it. So yeah, I'll just, I'll just say some. Um, okay, so one local news reporter I spoke to, local news reporter said they got 20 legal threats in a 25-year career more or less one a year. Um, another reporter, they said they were being sued by a property developer because they reported on safety defects in buildings. Um, the case never went anywhere. It just sort of sat there. But the journalist concerned in this case believes that, you know, there wasn't really a legal leg to stand on here and the developer never hoped to win. 
but just wanted to use it as a tactic. So basically, right. they thought the developer wanted to say to business associates, oh, that stuff you read about me in the paper, yeah, that's all going to trial. That's all, you know, that's mm. that's all subject to, to legal proceedings now. So it was a way to just downplay the allegations. And it just, wow. it never went anywhere. So the journalist told me, he was using the system to deflect from the fact that he'd built appalling apartments at the start of the boom. This is typical. You issue proceedings and you just let the thing sit there with the hope that the newspaper would settle. And either way, you can claim a victory. Um, this is, I mean, that's so serious, right? Like yeah. this is being used as a way to, yeah, like cover up something that might affect, you know, might end up with people losing their lives or something. It's so serious. Like this is so important for our society, that we're able to point to things that are wrong. We can point to defects mm. in buildings and report about them. And th this is coming out of an imbalance of resources. The fact that media organization, organizations are so cash strapped, they're like, we it's not worth our while, you know? Like, we could all be like, we could turn into like press lions and be like, we'll fight every case, you know? We'll take it to the yeah, courthouse. Yeah. And like, maybe, maybe we'd win, but media organizations just don't have the resources. Um, so you end up in this awful situation where, yeah, the inadvertent effect is just the those who can afford to take the legal proceedings in the first place have this advantage. Um, mm. So, yeah, it affects civil society organizations as well. I spoke to one civil society organization. They were highlighting privatization in medical care. OK, and they were sued by a business with interests in privatization of medical care. And this court case never went anywhere. But. The costs involved were so onerous that this organization had to delete communications, shut down all campaigning on the issue and keep everything a secret. They weren't able to tell anybody that it happened. Oh, is, how, how do you know about it then? Because they told me. Oh, right. So this is a, this is a whistleblower. Yeah, this is a whistleblower. Yeah. But they weren't able to tell wow. the public. That's the thing. Right. Um, th this one actually really concerned me. I was, I was told about a political party that when journalists contacted them from for comment in two cases responded by setting um by sending a defamation threat i think that's extremely serious um huh. yeah oh my god so it's like look it's wide ranging i could just keep going through these um yeah but it's clearly but yeah. like it's urgent this is urgent it's like, urgent this is, i i'm amazed at like wow the um how serious this can be. This really isn't just about besmirching somebody's name. This is, you know, this is about serious corruption being completely whitewashed um, mm. through a legal system, uh, which, like, wow, um, yeah. yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, and, and you're in, you're in a bit of a catch twenty two, right? Because if you try, if you kind of try and call anyone out for doing this, you just get subjected yeah. to this. My personal opinion uh, is that newspapers need to be more on the offensive about this. So I think yeah. this is this is my own personal view. I think newspapers should publish the costs um, that that this these libel cases are costing them. They should they mm -hmm. should publish and make it public how much they have to spend on lawyers to legal articles and and you know payouts and all that stuff just to to show the money that's being bled out of news organizations because of this. And I also mm -hmm. think that when we get threats like this that we should disclose it because i think that there should be like a um a personal reputation risk that people take like if someone's going mm. to um to make a frivolous claim against a newspaper they they should carry a yeah should like they should 
they should be should be a consequence of some sort. Yeah. Should, yeah, I mean, look, accountability. If, if, yeah. if, if there should be accountability. If if they have a good case, um, then they shouldn't be afraid of it being public. Um, and right. yeah, like, it, it, and if it's a frivolous thing, um, I think it should be exposed. And if people are abusing it for reputation management, especially politicians, then I think that the public should know. Should know, and it, there, it shouldn't be a secret. Mm. Um, but yeah. 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 I mean, like easier said than done. Right. Yeah. Especially on the personal journalist level. I mean, when you were yeah. talking about those journalists who were targeted ind- individually, um, yeah. you know, like kind of reminded me that uh, it's something that we've kind of said in in the past about these stereotypes of mainstream media, you know, controlling the world and everything when like most journalists that I know uh, and have known uh, are on like um, uh, freelance contracts are in pretty crappy rented accommodation, have trouble <laughs> making ends meet, probably work in yeah. like three or four different places at once and never really have stability in any of them. Um, you know, like, of course, there's big name journalists that we see all the time, like yourself, Naomi, some people, you know, who work in, in big papers and stuff. But the vast majority of journalists, um, you know, are, are just kind of get, trying to get by, right? So, like, how on earth, how on earth can they stand up to something like this? It's not a industry that you go into to make money i'll tell you that mm. even if you're a big name journalist that like it's not it's if you want to get rich it's not the industry to go into um mm. and yeah like we're particularly the smaller media organizations that have less resources like the impact of this is enormous like i spoke to one person they told me you know they were up really um they were up very very late in the night doing their own legally they can't they can't afford a lawyer so they were going through everything themselves and they were literally losing sleep going through all of this stuff to try and make sure. And they're doing real, real public interest journalism. Like, I can tell you this is stuff, all all kinds of stuff to do with housing, um, things that really everyone would agree is in the public interest. Uh, but it's very contentious. They get legal threats all the time. So they were, you know, they were up in the small hours going through every word, sometimes toning down the language because they can't afford to be sued. And then, you know, yeah. they were up immediately in the morning for childcare because like they had two small children um and like they just were talking about like the personal exhaustion you know <laughs> and like mm. you know it's just his home that like he, they, these people are yet yeah, they're they're really really struggling for stuff that is in the public interest and i think that it's yeah it's it's not acceptable that our legalist system is is set up in this way to 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 mitigate like to to the to make that difficult you know um, it yeah. shouldn't be on yeah, the yeah. side of the rich. Uh, just you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't be set up that way. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it seems obvious, and I can just imagine if that law was changed tomorrow. Imagine the flood of stories that would come out in the national media. The truth flooding past <laughs> the gates of the dam. If it got easier, you could just imagine. I mean, if, it, if the law was changed, yeah. I can tell you, like I've worked in publications beyond Ireland, and it is just night and day not having that mm. weighing over you and it's really really dispiriting when you know you have a story and you know it's good and you know it's true and you can't publish it um and like mm. the, just the feeling of freedom of you know of of being able to publish stuff that's true with confidence and not having to worry about this stuff is just is is great and yeah clearly in my opinion healthy for democracy all right well listen i think we will probably come back to this because this is that's a that's really quite a compelling subject. So, uh, so we'll see if we can uh, expand on that maybe in a future episode. But for now, I think that's plenty from us. So I'm going to say Sloan from me until next time. 
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks so much for your support of the podcast. It's hugely appreciated and it really keeps the podcast going. Thank you so much. And yeah, salon for me too.